0: Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And with me this fine Friday morning after Turkey Day is uh, Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor. And uh, we've we've got a wrap-up show here. As we look at the final proposal, but before we look at the final proposal for this thought experiment of what we are talking about, a, a proposed constitution, I just want to mention one thing that most people don't know about the day we just celebrated yesterday, Thanksgiving. Most people think, oh, yes, Thanksgiving happened because uh, the pilgrims had this uh, harvest and abundant amount of food and, and they shared it there. The Indians brought deer and, and uh, had a, had a great feast, which is all true. But people don't realize what happened before that Thanksgiving. You see, before that Thanksgiving, the first uh, two, three years of the Pilgrim settlement there in Plymouth, Massachusetts, there was the starving years. That is, many, many people, more than half of the Pilgrims that arrived, literally starved to death because there was not enough food. And winters, particularly when the food stores ran out, is the 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 terrible starving time. So the uh, the problem was that instead of obeying what God's law designs in terms of property ownership, that is in God's uh, economy in the Hebrew Republic that God uh, handed down at Mount Sinai, every family was to have a family farm in that Hebrew Republic. And family farm was uh, uh, the ultimate safety net and that it could never be taken from the family. If the family became indebted, they could rent the farm, but only rent it out for a maximum of 49 years. In the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, that family farm would revert to the original family God had given it to. So that's the basic free market design uh, that is part of the Hebrew Republic that the pilgrims thought they had a better idea. In fact, the idea they had is really akin uh, to socialism. That is, instead of having each family there in, in the Plymouth plantation having their own farm, they had a communal or a collective farm. Everybody farmed the same plot of land. And everybody gathered in the harvest from that plot into the communal warehouse or storehouse. And everyone took food out of that communal storehouse until uh, there wasn't any food left. And that's why the starving times. And and they realized that there was something wrong uh, in what they were doing. And they realized that the word of God instructed them in a better system. And that system would be to take their, their land and divide it into family plots. And every family would have its own farm. Every family would have a plot of land that it would plow and it plant and, and and reap the harvest from that and they would keep the harvest for their family and it would not go into the general storehouse and that therefore there was a incentive for that family to work hard in plowing the ground and planting the seeds and then weeding as the weeds came up to compete with the plow. In other words, the hard work put in, for that family was going to be rewarded to that family directly and not just go into the you know kind of the, the general storehouse that everybody got to draw out of until there was no food left and when they made that change when they decided what we've been doing is wrong socialism is wrong it's against the law of god it's against the design that god has that every family should have its own farm and every family should be able to keep the fruit of their own labor and yes If they have an abundance, they can certainly share it with their neighbor who is in lack. But to put everything together in a socialist commune uh, type of system is unbiblical. And so in their repentance, an amazing thing happened. As the very first year that they divided up the land and gave each family their own plot to farm and and to harvest from and to keep the fruit of, of their own labor. The very first year is when they had an abundance for the first time in the Plymouth Plantation. And such an abundance that they had this Thanksgiving celebration where they invited the Indians to join them and uh, they had this great feast. There was an abundance because they were following God's law and they were rejecting socialism. They were accepting the system that God created that every man should work. And if he doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And those who want to live off the largesse or the hard work of someone else, they shouldn't be rewarded for that wicked kind of socialist tendency. Uh, they should have to suffer. Uh, and if you know uh, people led by their own charitable desires are going to help them out, they're not going to help them out without any requirement on the part of these who refuse to work. If you refuse to work, oh, sorry, then you don't get to eat. And the amazing thing, the story that's almost never told about the pilgrim celebration of Thanksgiving is the reason they had an abundance for the very first time in that colony in contrast with the preceding years where many, many, many of them starved to death. The reason was they rejected socialism, and they, frag- uh, ref- uh, they they reflected the biblical structure of a free market system in which when you work hard on the land which you own, you get to keep the fruits of your labor, and the fruits of your labor therefore can feed your own family, and it's not your responsibility to feed some other family out of charitable desire. Certainly you can and should do so, but your first responsibility is to your own family and property ownership as it is at the heart of that system of government, which is why Satan has his, his his modern day hatred and rejection of that system in Marxism. Read Karl Marx very clearly, and he's absolutely uh, uh, without a doubt stating that the goal of Marxism is the abolition of all private property. In other words, to go to a collectivist system, nobody owns anything or the infamous World Economic Forum these days is infamous for saying, by the year 2030, you will own nothing and you'll be happy, of course. Of course, they're going to make you happy if you, if you refuse. But the idea that collectivism works, the history of the pilgrims shows that it does not. And obviously, the pilgrims are just but one example. We could cite many other historical examples. God designed us with a motivation that says, if I work hard, I want to keep the fruits of my labor. And therefore, if I have an opportunity and I know I get to keep the fruits of my labor, I'm going to work harder than I would if I know it just goes into the general storehouse and everybody gets to take out of that storehouse whatever they want, whether they've worked hard or not worked at all. And that's the problem here in America today. We have swallowed the socialist lie, and that lie has promised us prosperity if we accept this idea that the government gets to take. The majority, or at least half, of the fruits of our labor, and then the government gets to redistribute that to people who often refuse to work. You know, they want to sit on their fat derriere and collect the welfare check or uh, food stamps or all these other things that uh, the government offers to them, offering it by taking from those who produce and giving to those who are not producing. And of course, that. Uh, incentivizes many, many more people to join the non-producing side because, hey, they're lazy. They don't want to work. Uh, They they want to enjoy the fruits of someone else's labor. And that's essentially what socialism, Marxism, and, and communism are all about. And so if we're to learn a lesson of that first Thanksgiving of the pilgrims, we as a country need to reject socialism. We need to reject Marxism. We need to reject critical race theory, a branch of Marxism, all those satanic evil things, and we need to hold to the essential principle that our founders there discovered, that ownership of property is something that is a good, it is not an evil, it is something that should be protected, not destroyed, as the the Marxists have aimed to do. And so, hopefully, Americans will hear this message, learn this message, and we as a people will reject uh, Marxism and socialism. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts as we wrap up uh, the design that we've put together in this thought experiment of uh, of a new constitution?
1: Well, our subjects today would be Article 10 uh, Amendment and Article 11 Ratification of a New Constitution. So let's start with Article 10 Amendment. Article 5 of the current constitution reads, Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, on the application of legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes, as a part of this Constitution, when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state, without its consent, shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. There are actually two bad ideas in this article, and one good, but the good idea is rarely discussed in classes on the Constitution. Let's start with the bad ideas first, so that we can end on a relatively positive note. Amendment Proposal by Congress For most people, there is only one way to amend the Constitution of the United States. The Congress. Whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution. That is the way the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution, and the way the subsequent 17 amendments were added. For many, this is the American way symbol of our democracy never mind that the last form of government this nation's founders would have wanted was a democracy and as we peel back the covers on the idea of congress proposing amendments to the constitution we see it conflicts with the idea of representative government first question is why do we need a constitution dictators don't need them and most prefer to ignore them or rewrite them to solidify their powers Most of our representatives see them as photo ops when they participate in an oath to uphold the document. These ceremonies are nothing more than pure theater. We must face up to the reality that representative government is the exception to political history. Top-down forms of government, whether they be monarchies, empires, dictatorships, or even democracies, are formed as a way for the elite minority to dominate an ignorant majority. In a federal system, such as the one the founders believed they were creating, powers over the people are limited by distributing them to member states and the people. Periodic voting is a minor check on the tendency of elected officials to use government for their own purposes and to reward their friends. But the real check that protects the people is a properly framed constitution. In the United States, we exercise a voting check on our elected officials' only once every two years, for presidents every four years, and senators every six years. Our Constitution must protect us every day. on the purpose of a federal government, it was created by fully sovereign states to perform functions the individual states felt could be uh, done better in concert. Most obviously, defense it was also created to eliminate barriers to trade among the states. But the system also attracts people who wish to exert power over others. That power is employed not at the distributed level of the states, but over all the states. Ron Paul is the exception as a federal representative, a man who was constantly willing to go against the will of his peers in the House of Representatives by voting no when a measure was unconstitutional. In a group with such a bias for concentrating power in the federal system, one should not expect any measure. That reduces the size of federal government to have much of a chance. Any proposed amendment address, addressing needed structural changes must come from outside of Congress—an amendment proposal by a convention of the states. <laughs> the second bad idea concerning amendment proposal is that on the application of legislatures of two-thirds of the several states. She'll call a convention for proposing amendments. That convention may propose amendments. But to what body do the states apply? To Congress? Weren't the states supposed to be sovereign? Didn't they contract among themselves to create the federation? Who is the master? And who is the servant in the situation? Now, here's the good idea. Equal state suffrage in the Senate. The statement rarely gets any attention when the Constitution is analyzed. According to the original Constitution, the state legislature's controlled Senate was always to have a check on the popularly elected House of Representatives. Unfortunately, the 17th Amendment partially neutered this concept by also making the Senate a popularly elected House of Congress. Now, the sixth term of office works against government by the people since it creates a group of representatives who are less sensitive to recall by the people, whereas representatives in the House of Representatives have representation ratios of approximately 750,000 to 1. Senators have a representative ratios of from 39 million to 1 in the case of California to 581,000 to 1 in the case of Wyoming. Reaching that many people in a campaign is impossible, making senatorial candidates particularly vulnerable to special interest campaign funding. Here's a second limitation, one that's basically a good idea in Article 5 of the current Constitution. There's nothing in the language of that article that blocks proposed amendments that would modify the powers given to either house in the original constitution. The Senate's powers could be shorn such that it becomes an ineffective check on the House. Worse, the Senate's powers could be augmented, while the House's powers are shorn, making the House an ineffective check on the Senate. The good idea still has merit, however, when generalized. In a properly framed constitution, there should be limitations on what parts of the constitution are amendable. Some of these should be in the constitution, but limits should also be specified by the Council of States whenever a convention of states is called. This should prevent a runaway convention, such as occurred in 1787 when the current constitution was created. So here's the underlying problem, constitutional ignorance. No matter how well the process of amending a constitution is described, if the citizenry is constitutionally ignorant, the newly formed government will ultimately become tyrannical. This creates an unfortunate, which comes first the chicken or the egg situation. Ideally, only constitutionally informed citizens would vote, but no objective test can be created in the current contentious political environment. The Council of States is in the best position to describe such a test, uh, but it comes into existence only after the ratification of a new constitution. Just considering a new constitution, however, would be a strong incentive for the citizenry to finally learn the current constitution and its underlying principles of governance. Once a new government has been formed under a new constitution, with a new awareness of constitutional principles in the citizenry, it should be possible to create an objective test to qualify voting citizens. Perhaps some of this can be explored during the transition period to a new constitution. The basic challenge is that there are two distinctive views of the Constitution. The first, the Constitution is a living document. This is the view originally associated with Woodrow Wilson and the progressive movement. In its most radical form, the Constitution is interesting history that serves no other purpose. Congress and the federal bench would make all of the rules. The original and the second is the original intent of the Constitution should be preserved. Well, this may be preferable to the living Constitution idea. It still assumes that the Constitution of 1787 was structurally near perfection. The new Constitution series conducted by We the People should make it clear that there are significant structural flaws in the current Constitution. Furthermore, we now have 234 years of experience with federal government under the Constitution 1787. It would be senseless to discard that experience simply to remain consistent with the original intent. the key to designing a test of the new constitution is to establish a basic set of principles for constitutional government the series has explored those principles next step is to identify commonalities and differences within the two constitutional camps necessary constitutional knowledge tests could be designed such that there are a common set of questions where consensus has been achieved and two branches of questions where there are profound differences between the two camps A test taker would identify as a linen constitution or an originalist citizen. A single text would identify the different uh, perspectives such that both perspectives would be available to a prospective test taker prior to taking the test. This is not an ideal solution because such tests could not be completely objective as a math test. The alternative, however, is to allow constitutionally ignorant citizens to select representatives. That is a formula for tyranny. So, who should be empowered to propose an amendment? <clears throat> if we are to live under a system of government of, by, and for the people, every voting citizen ought to have the right to propose amendments to the Constitution. This would exclude only those citizens who are not age, qualified, or ineligible to vote for whatever reason under law. Nonetheless, a governmental entity must still process an amendment request to include amendment wording. Rather than a branch in the federal government having that power, it makes sense that processing of amendment proposals be conducted by the governing entity that is closer to the states than the federal government, but is also assigned the overseer role of the federal government, the Council of States. So what is the distinction between level one and lower level amendment that should be considered? Constitution 1787 assumed that the amendment process should require an effort and that amendment adoption should involve a broad consensus in order to to retain a stable basis for constitutional law. That process would be retained for level one of the new constitution, comprising broad principles. However, a new constitution would also offer a faster and easier way to amend at lower levels of the constitutional document. This would be particularly important for all opinions of the Supreme Court of the states where final opinions involve constitutionality. The Supreme Court of the states would still submit these options or opinions to the people for ratification purposes in order to eliminate any possibility of uh, legislating from the bench. So here's the proposed language for amending a new constitution. Article 5 of the current constitution would be rewritten as follows under a new constitution. The Council of States upon a two-thirds majority shall propose level one amendments to this constitution. Alternatively, on the application to the Council of States of the legislature of two-thirds of the several states, the Council of States shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this constitution when ratified by three-fourths of the other states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Council of States, provided that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. The states may specify the scope of amendments to be considered in their application and may not amend the Constitution beyond that scope. Council of States may propose upon a simple majority amendments to the Constitution below level one. Any such amendments to the Constitution must be considered subsidiary to the Constitution as described at Level 1, and must identify in their proposal the Level 1 principle they are designed to clarify. This language does two things. First, it eliminates Congress from the amendment process while moving the initiating of amendment proposals back to the people. And two, it provides a streamlined mechanism for adding clarification language to the broad principles described at Level 1 of a new Constitution. This is a significant change that is aimed at eliminating Legislating from the bench. Note that amendment ratification is not fully described in this article. All Constitution ratification, initial and amendment, is described in Article 11 of the new Constitution. So let's get into Article 11 ratification. The current Constitution treats ratification in its Article 7 as a process that affected only the initial ratification of the Constitution of 1787. Once the Ninth State ratified, the Constitution came into effect, and Article 7 served only historical purposes. Under a new Constitution, Article 11 addresses both ratification of the initial Constitution and its amendments. <clears throat> Article 7 of the current Constitution states, Ratification of the conventions of United states should be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution between the states so ratified as same." Ratification of the Constitution states um, of... <coughs> Uh, required something less than 70% of the states to ratify. Ratification of amendments, on the other hand, requires a minimum of 75% of the states. If the higher ratio were employed to ratify a new constitution, 38 states would be required to bring a new constitution into existence. Conversely, 13 states could block the new constitution. If the lower ratio were used, 70%, 35 states would be required to ratify, and 16 states could block. Since 70% is consistent with the current constitution and three states could make a difference, it's reasonable to use the 70% ratification rule to bring a new constitution into existence. At this point, reservations are likely to be raised. Most people can identify 16 states that would refuse to ratify a new constitution, as described in the series. <clears throat> First, recall that we are conducting a thought experiment. The series is not designed to provo- provoke The series is designed to provoke people into a deeper thinking about the Constitution, not to serve as the foundation document for a political movement. It pays little attention to current political realities. Could it serve a real purpose in the future? Only if economic, social, and educational realities change significantly. Is that possible, or will they remain as they have for the past quarter of a century? In the economic-financial sphere alone, a crisis appears to be around the corner. Interest payments on U.S. borrowing will soon be over a trillion dollars a year. The third of the three bond rating agencies has already signaled that U.S. bonds will be downgraded unless government borrowing is reduced. The other two agencies have already downgraded U.S. debt. That means the minimum cost of money that has been borrowed in the past is coming to an end and the cost of money to the U.S. government will increase. Already, foreign governments are taking steps to abandon the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency, which will further add to the cost of borrowing. The green movement, to which the federal government is deeply committed, is unsustainable. The COVID-19 control program, that assumed governments have the wisdom to protect citizens against new viral uh, viral pathogens, is being revealed as a colossal hoax that allowed governments and the medical establishment to conduct unethical human experimentation that makes the Nazi doctor efforts appear like a Sunday school picnic. By comparison, any one of these issues could blossom into a loss of credibility with government overnight. This thought experiment then has a second purpose in real life. It provides a real alternative to just performing the same political actions over and over again and expecting a different outcome. To be practical instruments for governance, constitutions and their amendments should not be ratified by state legislatures and state conventions, which invite special political interests. They should be ratified by the people directly through special elections. Based upon these principles, Article 9, uh, Article 11, I should say, is rewritten to say, The ratification by the people of 70% of the states in special elections shall be sufficient for the establishment of this Constitution among the states, so ratifying the same. Likewise, ratification of Level 1 amendments to the Constitution are required as for the adoption of the original Constitution. Ratification of lower-level amendments may be made as specified in Article 10, but requiring approval by two-thirds of the states.
0: Oh, thank you, Phil. Excellent. Uh, Because these details, as, as we wrestle with them, we can see the disasters that have happened historically in our 200 plus years of operating under this constitution and and uh, trying to guard against those and prevent those from happening again is is extremely important. And, and you're absolutely right pointing out the problem with attempting to implement this right now directly is constitutional illiteracy. I mean, even the members of Congress who you would expect because, you know, at their federal level, but no, they don't understand our constitution as it was a uh, designed by our founders, and they were, that you know, they're, they're free in their own minds to make all kinds of things up that are unconstitutional, and they don't seem to have any check upon that power because the people who elect them, they don't know the standard, and therefore they don't know how to hold their elected account, uh, officials accountable uh, to that standard. And so literacy is an absolute must. And, and again, this is why we're doing this thought experiment here on We the People, the Constitution Matters, because we recognize unless a grassroots movement of Americans all across our land understand these foundational principles, understand where uh, the holes have been created and loopholes have been uh, put into uh, our current constitutional structure. If they don't understand that, they won't realize what needs to change. And I think you're absolutely right that we're coming up upon a crisis, one of the three that you mentioned or perhaps even something beyond those. But uh, certainly the crisis is clear. Of our ever-growing debt. And uh, then, uh, as you point out rightly, the cost of servicing that debt. I guess not every one of our listeners may understand this. When uh, one of the three rating agencies downgrades the debt of the United States, it means people are going to demand a higher level of interest from money they loan to our government. And so instead of saying, well, let's just pick, pick some numbers out of the air. These don't necessarily reflect anything currently, but say They can get a 5% when they're AAA rated, but if they're downgraded from that, all of a sudden it may cost 6% uh, to borrow money or or 7%. And so we're heading into a crisis in in that regard. Of course, the crisis that we know historically has always happened to every fiat currency. That is currency that is created out of thin air. It's not backed by anything, uh, and that is what we have been operating under Ever since the uh, gold window closed 1971, uh, Nixon, when he closed the gold window, basically said, this paper they're printing, uh, that the Treasury is issuing, this paper's backed by nothing other than a promise that the federal government will repay anybody that uh, uses this paper uh, and repay with what? Well, just more promises. <laughs> and we know how good Congress is at, at keeping uh, keeping their promises. So I, I think we are headed to a crisis, which is why it's so important for all Americans to begin to understand these principles, understand what the purpose of government actually is. And I think that's one of the the, the big things here that is difficult with uh, our current system where a person turns 18, they get to vote, no qualifications beyond that required. In fact, many illegals in my state here in Maryland, are voting in certain jurisdictions to come apart. One of the most infamous, uh, you're here illegally, they don't care. They'll they'll give you a voting card. And, and we know that others uh, in, in little less clear ways are also doing that because our uh, current division of motor vehicles, when they issue licenses, which they do to illegals, they offer them at the point they're issuing them a license. There's uh, here, a voter registration card. You could register to vote. And so we have Thousands of illegals voting who are not legally citizens of our country. But the greater problem is what about those who vote under a new system where we try to clean all this up, but they don't understand the purpose of government? I think one of the best ways that we'll be able to help people uh, come to a conclusion that a test is needed uh, to secure uh, that right of the franchise, that right of voting, is just to simply think of this question What is the purpose of government. What's the purpose of civil government? And the answer is very clearly stated in our Declaration of Independence. The purpose of civil government is to protect God-given rights. So therefore, what is the purpose of voting? The purpose of voting is to select individuals who will work in the civil government to protect our God-given rights. But what if you have somebody who enters the voting booth and their purpose In their mind, of what they want for the government is not to protect God-given rights. Their desire is to steal using the government as the agent of theft to steal from their neighbor and put it into their own pocket. And of course, when you have the government doing the stealing for you, it's the most safe. uh, It's the safest means by which you can conduct any uh, scheme of theft because the government is the ones in control of uh, the police and. It has more guns and more power to to enforce its will. And so, if we have socialists, we talked about the idea of socialism there with with the pilgrims. If you have socialists, their belief is you shouldn't be able to keep the fruits of your own labor. The government should take the fruits of your labor from you and then redistribute those fruits of your labor in any way they think is well equitable by whatever definition the government comes up with equitable. And if we have people like that going into the voting booth, what are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for representatives like AOC, who are blatant communists who believe in destroying the right to own private property, destroying people's right to uh, pass on their heritage, uh, their wealth to their children. They want the government to steal it all. And AOC, I think, was the one that at one point was proposing a 97% income tax for certain Uh, uh, you know, income earner earners, and it's like, oh, that's that's just blatant stuff. But so, we do need an education program, which is exactly why we exist here, we the people, because we need voters who understand these principles and who are committed to seeing that they elect those who are not going to go to Washington D.C. to steal for them, bring the bacon home to the district, as people infamously say, but rather who are going to go there to protect the God-given rights of everyone in society. Now one of the things that uh, we also need to consider, but maybe we would only be put uh, in the discussion phase that, that would follow uh, uh, you know this proposed constitution is this idea of ratification where not every state agrees to join this new government. This would be similar to what happened under the Articles of Confederation and the Articles of Confederation there were 13 states, but not all 13 states initially joined, this new constitution that we're under today. North Carolina stayed out for a little over a year. Rhode Island was out of it for about two two years plus, actually. And so you had two countries. You had the country under the new constitution, what we call the 1787 constitution, and you had two states that were still under the Articles of Confederation. They had not agreed to leave the old government to join the new government. So I guess that's the 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 question that needs to be clearly spelled out, could we wind up with two countries, you know, uh, that we have a group that says, no, 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 we like the old constitution and all the abuses of the old constitution, and we're going to stick with the old constitution. And you guys that want to toddle off and form a new constitution and so forth, you have. And by the way, this is really in accord with the thinking of our founders as given to us in the Declaration of Independence, that every group of people as a civil body politic have a right to choose the form of government that they want to be governed by. They have the right to choose a monarchy if they want. I wouldn't want a monarchy. I <laughs> hope most people wouldn't. But, you know, they have a right to choose a republic, or I guess a right to choose socialism. Although I, I don't know that anybody would want socialism unless you were on the bottom end of that scale and you got to steal from the people who are producing. Uh, but we could wind up with two countries. So we need to, you know, have that clearly in people's thinking. That if, if we were to move to this step uh, in, in creating a new constitution and allowing states to choose, if, uh, if the, the percentage, 70%, choose yes, we want this new constitution. It's going to do a better job of protecting our God-given rights than the 1787 constitution. Uh, that is very good. And the thing that I like about the proposal that we're uh, developing here is that it would further limit the federal government. We need the federal government to do less and less, to be less involved in our lives, to have less powers than it currently does, to be very, very limited. And, and indeed, more of those powers should be shifted to the state governments. But again, we don't want state governments with unlimited powers. Rather, we want powers as local to the people as possible. So at the county level or the town or township level, because when you have The powers at that local level, you have far greater ability on the part of the people, the electorate, to control what happens uh, in their local body politics, so in their county or in their town or township. Uh, And so the power kept at the local level uh, ensures that the people's God-given rights are going to be uh, better uh, protected by that. And so these, I, I just love these great ideas of, and also the idea that there needs to be identified certain parts of the new Constitution that cannot be amended. You know, things such as the Second Amendment, for example, and it should be very clear that your God-given rights keep and bear arms can never be infringed in this part of the Constitution, can never be amended. Likewise with the First Amendment, and I would include uh, really all 10 amendments in my view, <laughs> the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights. These should be things that cannot be altered. Uh, They are secure because they are part of the creator's design for our liberty, for our freedom. And if we don't preserve them, then again, we certainly won't preserve liberty. Your thoughts, Phil?
1: Well, let me uh, unmute here a bit and see if I can get into that (laughs) the the time allowed. Uh, First, the financial crisis. I think we're seeing the end of the so-called modern monetary crisis. Uh, theory which got quite a distribution and a lot of people bought into it and it was proclaimed by a professor in the new york so-called new york higher education system uh, on, the underlying idea is like giving the family's credit card to a teenager and inviting the teenager to spend on whatever the teenager wants now how many people how many family members having responsibility for their their family finances would buy that idea amazingly very few here amazingly as soon as it comes to you know the overall population all of that is forgotten so uh we are in agreement that uh if two countries are created that's unfortunate uh but it is the choice of the people of those two countries and we should respect it we should not be coercing uh you know, we should not be coercing those countries because they're outside of the, uh, the new constitution. If they wish to join and see the benefits later, that's a wonderful way to bring everybody together. But uh, to continue the mistakes of the past, uh, no, that is not an acceptable solution in this case. Better to have two countries than one that is so completely fractured that it is a non-country in, in reality. And picture the fact that when uh, the United States came into being under the Constitution of 1787, we had two states that held out, Rhode Island and North Carolina. They were physically, about as physically separated as you could be. So, yes, we can tolerate that situation if a California decides to go in one direction and an Iowa in another. Um, I also agree with your comments about uh, the Ten Amendments not being uh, amendable. they, if, if the Constitution had been written correctly, and the anti-federalists were, were on top of this, that would have been in the Constitution itself. If the uh, if the constitutionalists had followed the, the Pennsylvania model, where and I think a lot of the states have, have fallen in this pattern, by the way, so I don't don't want to elevate Pennsylvania above the others. But if we follow the Pennsylvania model, which is that becomes Article One in a constitution, as it has been emphasized in this series, that it is the first article and it is it is not uh, it is not susceptible to amendment.
0: Hey, amen. And, you know, one of the things that uh, is, a, is a problem when we look at, at our current composition of, of these United States of America is that so many people don't understand even the basics about uh, the constitution. So there needs to be a, a massive education effort. And another problem that, that occurs to me is we have a lot of people here in the country currently that are here illegally, uh, and uh, hmm, how to deal with that whole issue is is a, a big conundrum as well. But in addition to that, there's a, a lack of unity in America because we don't have a, 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 a belief system about what the purpose of government is. Sadly, many, many people who are coming to the shores of America, not all, but many people coming to the shores of America today, particularly those coming illegally are coming, because they see they can get a welfare check here, you know, They can get free health care, they can get uh, food stamps, they can get free housing. In fact, the Biden administration has given people thousands of dollars enticing them to come here. So uh, the kind of uh, immigrants that are coming today are extremely different than immigrants you know of latter uh, you know 100 years ago or so where they were coming because they were coming for a better life, but the better life they were coming for was not something that was going to be handed to them on a silver platter. No, no, no. It was something that was going to re- require a lot of hard work on their part. Uh, they recognized that they would come in at the lowest end, probably, of the labor pool. Uh, if they uh, really worked hard, they might be able to obtain uh, enough money to buy a farm or, or buy a home. and uh, Anyway, but they realized that it was going to be better for their children than it was for them and their grandchildren even better. Uh, but they came with a work ethic. They realized hard work was what it was going to take, and they realized that our country offered the land of opportunity, not the land of the welfare check, but the land of opportunity. Well, sadly, the not only the Biden administration, some other administrations have clearly projected a message worldwide, come here for the freebies, you know, come here for the welfare check. Uh, we, will, we will make life very easy for you, but who are you making life easy for? No, no, no not for the citizens. The citizens wind up being the ones that that pick up the tab for all these freeloaders who want to come in. So what we do with those who are here as freeloaders, obviously, the the new government would completely cut off all of that welfare system from the federal level. What the states do uh, is, you know, dependent upon their state constitution and their process of legislating in their state. But clearly, all federal welfare would be chopped off. There would be none. And I think that would uh, turn about the flood of immigrants. And so many of them who are here currently might turn around and leave. You know, <laughs> they might say, no, we don't want to be in a place that's not going to give us the welfare check that we, we came for.
1: Yeah. Um, first, illegals. Uh, I agree. Cut it off. That's unfortunate because some people may have been um, enticed into taking the illegal route. And uh, we've heard the stories about what these people endure. It's just amazing. But there is a legal process, which is safer, but uncre- and just unbelievably bureaucratic and um, perhaps not just as well. But we have to cut it off at some point. That will leave you with a group of illegals who are resident in the United States. We have to look at this group and analyze them very closely and break them into, let us say, at least two camps. Those that should obviously be expelled and those who have a a reasonable path towards full citizenship. Those, the second group are I, those that we want, the the want to welcome yes. and we want yeah. to yeah. help held along that path. The first group, we want says, to get rid of, she 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 of quickly feel as quickly as possible.
0: Hmm. But, amen to that. And I am not at all opposed to immigration. I know some wonderful patriotic Americans, some who escaped from Vietnam and their families escaped for their lives. And they are so grateful to be here in America. They're wonderful patriotic citizens who learned the Constitution. They, uh, you know, they went through that whole process of becoming a citizen that others I know from socialist states like Guatemala that escaped the horrible disaster that socialism ultimately brings upon a society and the, the danger to your life, liberty, and property and so on. And uh, they also, you know, they became extremely patriotic Americans that more patriotic and more interested. i always found this very, very curious. Those those kind of passionate immigrants were more interested in learning the Constitution than the you know, citizens who, whose ancestors have been here many, uh, uh, many decades or centuries even. Because uh, they recognize coming from countries like Ven- uh, Vietnam or, or uh, you know Guatemala or today Venezuela or you name Cuba, all, all these other. Those people know what the loss of liberty looks like. They know what it looks like when the government uh, becomes completely tyrannical. And uh, it does not protect your life, does not protect your property, not, not protecting your liberty. Those essentials are not part of any of the governments. That's why they escape from those shores to come to these shores for liberty. And so we, we love to have those kind of, of immigrants. Uh, sir. But the ones, like you say, are, are coming here for a welfare check, no, we do not need them and we do not want them. They are a drain. And, and, and the other thing this should do by limiting the federal government to a very small circle It will take an enormous burden off the back of we, the people who are paying them on average. And again, this is average across America. Fifty percent of their labor goes to federal, state and local governments in forms of taxation and fees and licenses and on and on the list goes of the way uh, the government takes from us. And of course, the unspoken taxation of inflation which is enormous. I understand that they're saying, oh, it's only like 7%. Now, that's a lie. It's probably double that right now, more like 15%. So they're taking our wealth at an enormous pace and uh, it's an unsustainable pace, but obviously it has this design, at least uh, so it appears to me, it's a design to eliminate the middle class. That there will be, a, if if they're allowed to continue with the rate of inflation, the rate of taxation, uh, rate of regulation that, that is current, they will destroy the middle class. The middle class will disappear. In fact, uh, economists who have looked at what uh, the actual, when you take uh, inflation into account, the actual uh, uh, income of middle America, the middle class, it has been on decline for several decades. Oh yeah, the numbers look like you know people are making more, but no, no, no. With inflation, they're actually making less. I know that in my day growing up, it was quite typical for uh, one income households most wives stayed home, and they were housewives, and they didn't have to work because the husband had enough income that would take care of all the needs of the family. Well, today it's a you know most most families they can't see that even being possible that you don't have two income earners. What happened between that day of the 1950s and 60s and today? Inflation has eaten away, and taxation and regulation have eaten away at the liberty of America, and have contracted the middle class and continue to contract it. With the, We could see the goal of basically pushing everyone into poverty and the, and the poor becoming dependent upon the social welfare system that is in control of the government. And then the extremely wealthy, the, the elite, the well-to-do, the billionaires and so forth, they continue to get richer and richer. And, and by the way, we saw this in, in COVID, the tragedy of 2020, all these mom and pop businesses were driven out out of business, but oh, Walmart was allowed to stay open, and Amazon was just exploding in wealth, and the wealthy became wealthier, and the middle class got crunched, and 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 many of them destroyed and, and out of business. You know, I knew some restaurants that have been around for fifty years, but COVID destroyed them. You know, they didn't have any customers for too long, and and it wasn't even possible to reopen once uh, once the restrictions were lifted. So we have things that have been taking place that are destroying the middle class. But really, when we look at it, the middle class are the best protection, I believe, for liberty. The rich are going to play a game using politicians and bribing politicians to get richer. And they're going to abuse the system. Not all of them, but, but, you know, some of the most wealthy and many of them. They will abuse the system to gain wealth and aggrandize their position. But the middle class are concerned about themselves and their families. uh, And they're more concerned about, uh, you know, having a good living but not making a, a killing. And so uh, many people in, in the poor raised in, in poverty, their goal is to get into the middle class. And America was the land that, that gave them that, that opportunity to do so.
1: Let me make a last point about uh, the so-called lack of unity. And there's, there's no question. We, we probably lack unity more today than even during the, the uh, period of the uh, war of independence against uh, Great Britain. Uh, the two ways to look at, at unity. Um, I love the idea of pluralism. That is, that there are multiple points of view that we experiment with them, we select the best, reject the worst. And I think uh, um, a, a society that lives pluralistically is a society that flourishes. Now, we've seen how our politicians are, are just bent on the idea of increasing contention. Uh, in society of creating different classes of people, very arbitrarily, uh, economic class has always been exploited from Adam Smith to to Karl Marx. But um, beyond that, uh, we just have all kinds of of classes, new classes that are being created: LGBTQ versus the rest of us, uh, the uh, uh, green people versus the non-green people, and it you know, goes on and on and on. And basically. We've got, we've got to get rid of that second idea. Recognize it for what it is. It is an evil based upon envy and greed. Let's come back to looking at each other as uh, with respect. Every individual should be deserving of respect until they prove clearly that they do not deserve that, that recognition.
0: Mm-hmm. Amen. And it really comes back to understanding what are rights. rights come from God. They're not civil rights that has come from the civil government. They're they're rights that come from God. And our founders were clearly establishing you have the right to life. Therefore, no one has uh, the uh, right to murder you, to unjustly take your life. You have a right to property. No one has the right to steal from you. That's not a right. That's a wrong. And so uh, we need to understand that our founders were looking to a standard that was fixed, a standard given by the laws of the universe, what they call the laws of nature and nature's God, by which, by the way, they were referring to the Bible, God's word as as the standard, the Ten Commandments being a, a basic summary of those, those uh, legal principles. And if we understand it, rights are given by God, they're fixed, and they cannot be altered, then it's clear that there's things today people are talking about as rights that are not right. You have no right uh, to health care, because a right to health care would mean that you can you know, put a gun to the head of somebody who's a doctor or nurse and force them without pay. That's right. Without pay to service your needs medically. And, uh, you know, we would never do that in any other category. You know, uh, uh, you know, I you would say uh, if you claim I have a right to my automobile operating at peak efficiency and therefore I can put a head to the, the gun to the head of an auto mechanic and force him to repair my my vehicle without paying him, force him to because I have a right to have a car that operates and he has a duty therefore to give me uh what is mine. So we need to separate the idea in in our, our thinking what are actual rights versus what are uh you know things that we can purchase with our labor. Well, I can purchase healthcare and purchase an auto mechanic to, to repair my vehicle, but those are not things that uh uh, our our rights, and that's uh, that's where I also put the category of LGBT. We never have a right to do that which the law of the universe, God's law, says is wrong. Uh, to commit sodomy, fornication, adultery—those are not rights; those uh, are wrong.
1: Uh, just kind of closing uh, plug here, if I can, on reading a great book called *The New Abnormality*. It's by uh, Aaron Carriati, and it's about the rise of the biosecurity state. Uh it is one of the best um, compilations about the impact of uh, COVID-19 control program but it goes well beyond that. I recommend it very highly.
0: And the title again is The new Abnormal-
1: Abnormality. abnormalities.
0: <laughs> Creative title, yes. Yeah. Uh, and indeed we have experienced things in these past 3 years that are unprecedented and uh, tyrannical in the, in the extreme. And by the way, Next uh, Monday, we're, uh, next Friday, we're going to examine uh, the, the wrap up for this. And by the way, we invite you as our listeners to submit your questions or your thoughts. Uh, use my personal email, dwhitney at theamericanview.com, dwhitney at theamericanview.com. We'd love to hear from you as we wrap up this series. And we're going to the following Friday, that's in December, uh, we're going to launch a new series. We're going to take take a look at what happened uh, with the COVID crisis. So we're going to take a look at it constitutionally and then take a look at uh, what was done to us and to our constitutional republic. In a sense, we're going to put the uh, actors on trial. I think Fauci deserves a public trial, and I think it's important for us to, to, to conduct that trial uh, using our constitution as, as the standard. So uh, we invite you to join us for that, but uh, check out also our uh, website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on podcasts, and we're all the way at the bottom of the list. We the people, the Constitution Matters, and we've got a new structure there that enables you much more easily to access the training materials, and we encourage you to spread that uh, far and wide as we seek to restore our constitutional republic. Join us again next Friday morning. We the people, the Constitution Matters.